Great singing, everybody. Love to hear your voices uh, singing like that. It's welcome. Good to have you here as we're joining in the Word of God in this journey with Jesus toward the cross. We're looking at Mark chapter 14. You can turn your Bibles or you can use your app if you'd like. We'll also have some words on the screen. Uh, also, if you're new here, you don't own a Bible, uh, g- grab one in the uh, seat back in front of you. Uh, take that as, your g- as our gift to you. Uh, I just encourage you to read it, okay? So take that home, start reading it if you're not used to that. Mark is uh, the second of four Gospels that you'll find if you go like two-thirds of the way into your Bible, uh, you'll find that Gospel. It's an account, in fact, our earliest account of the life and the historicity of Jesus in the entire world is captured uh, historically in this book, which is why one of the reasons we're walking through it, to really discover the real Jesus, who is he? Not the Jesus of our imagination or the one created by culture, but who is he actually in his own words and and, and by the people who knew him uh, uh, face to face. So that's where we're going to be. Now, before we get into the gospel of Mark and into chapter 14, I want to tell you about a new ministry that we're going to be launching. Uh, It's called Alpha. We're going to be launching this to reach people, to help them encounter uh, what it means to follow Jesus who he is, answer some of the biggest questions that they might have about God and faith in a very um, comfortable way, an engaging, dialogical kind of way. And so check out this little video. It gives you just a taste of what that's about. Life is busy. Every day we ask questions like, what's happening today? What should I wear? How am I going to fit everything in? But then there are bigger questions like, Why am I here? What's my purpose? Where am I heading? Is there more to life than this? These are some of life's big questions, but there's rarely enough time to think them through. That's why Alpha exists. Alpha is a place to explore life's big questions in a safe and open environment. It's a series of sessions where anyone can share their thoughts and opinions and ask questions without feeling judged. When you come to an Alpha, you'll notice that first, there's food. Whether it's a full meal or a light snack, this is the time to get to know each other in a casual setting. Next, you'll watch an Alpha talk. The talks are created to engage and spark conversation. They explore big issues around faith from a Christian perspective. After the talk is a time for discussion. This is the most essential part of any Alpha. It allows everyone to share their own opinions on the ideas presented in the talks. It's a time for people with different thoughts, beliefs, and experiences to ask honest questions and have open conversation. Every week, there are guests coming for the first time to an Alpha in their community. Alpha is for everyone, regardless of background or beliefs. There's no pressure, no follow-up, and it's completely free to attend. Come and explore life's big questions. Find an Alpha near you today. All right, so this is Alpha. Hopefully it's something as you interact with that, you say, man, that, that really seems to make sense in the culture in which we live. And that's really the, the idea. It's, it's meant to reach people in a culture in which we live in, in a non-threatening kind of way. We're actually looking for some discussion leaders. So um, the table leaders, this is not, listen carefully, we're not looking for Bible answer man or Bible answer woman. Uh, to sit there and tell everyone the right answers. We're actually looking for somebody who's a really good listener. We're looking for people who are humble, people who uh, love people and are curious, naturally curious about people. 
um, people that have uh, hospitality or like to make an environment hospitable. That's what we're looking for at these tables. So that's you. Reach out to Pastor Terry. You can go right to the website, find out more. But between now and Easter, we're going to be launching this the week after Easter. Be thinking about who you might want to invite to this. People that might be curious about what you believe or maybe asking some of those existential questions in their life or maybe feeling directionless or or seeking in the Lord in some way and invite them. And you can come too. Come with them to Alpha. So it's going to be a great time together. Be praying for that. Okay, we are in this 40-day uh, season of prayer and fasting. You've been receiving devotionals each, uh, each day. Uh, hopefully you've been reading that. Hopefully it's been leading you into a time of prayer. We're going to be talking about prayer today from our text. Let me ask you a question. If you asked the average person, what is the purpose of prayer? What do you think you would hear back? This is rhetorical. You can say it if you like, but what do you think you'd hear? I think most people approach prayer kind of like Aladdin and the genie in the bottle, right? We're hoping that God will just give us something we want. You know, Lord, I didn't study God. I didn't study for this test. And so would you just sort of zap me with supernatural guessing ability? God, I, as I, I'm about to ask out this girl, can she be so desperate that she says yes? God, I really want an Eagle Super Bowl victory, right? He didn't answer that one this year. But this is how a lot of people think about prayer. Maybe if we want to add a little bit more of a biblical or scriptural uh, assignment to that, we might say prayers, prayers for God to change stuff, you know, change my circumstances, change my job, change uh, my, my spouse, uh, change my financial situation, change my health. And there's, there's biblical precedent for that. Those are legitimate prayers. Or maybe I'm praying for someone else, for God, God, for, for God to change their stuff, you know, their circumstances. Or maybe we go a little bit deeper. You might, some of us might know the Acts model of prayer, adoration, worship, confession, thanksgiving, supplication, some of which we did this morning. And those are deep, good prayers, prayers in the Bible but I wonder how many might answer the question of the purpose of prayer based on what we're going to talk about today. I think there's very few people who would mention or pursue the, what we see modeled by Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane today in Mark chapter 14. It's what we're going to call today the prayer of realignment, the prayer of realignment. And I believe if we can get, really get a hold of this kind of prayer, if we could bring this into the daily practice, the regular practice of our lives, we would see radical transformation as we follow, seek to follow Jesus as resilient disciples. So I want to t- teach you and talk to you about this prayer of realignment. We're going to look at Mark chapter 14, starting in verse 32. They went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took Peter, James, and John, and he brought them along with him. Now remember where we are, final days, hours of Passion Week before Jesus goes to the cross. Jesus just came from the Last Supper, where we were last week in our text, uh, in Bethany, back over the Mount of Olives. He's heading down toward the Kidron Valley before he goes to the Temple Mount, and he stops in a place called the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, Gethsemane was not like a garden like we think of. It wasn't like Longwood Gardens. This was a commercial garden. The word 
Gethsemane comes from a, a combo Greek word that just means olive press. This is a commercial site where they harvested olives and they pressed them to make olive oil and sell it out in the market. So it wasn't really a garden as we think of it back then. Today, if you visit Gethsemane, it is an olive garden. Not, not the, the restaurant, you know, never-ending possibles garden, right? Not that. I mean like an olive tree garden that you can visit. In fact, the very same spot uh, you can go, if you go on the tour with us in, in, uh, in October of this year to the Holy Land, we will sit, we will pray in that garden. We will see trees, olive trees, that have root systems that are 2,000 years old that were there at the time of Christ. That exists today. And it's at this spot that Jesus brings along three of his disciples deeper in Gethsemane to pray with him. We continue on in verse 33. And he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. He said this, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch. Going a little farther, he fell to the ground and he prayed that if it was possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. If you've ever doubted the humanity of Jesus, look no further than this description of Jesus right here. This is a man who personally knew anxiety. This is someone who experienced an overwhelming sense of grief. Have you ever experienced that? If you have experienced anxiety... You can relate to Jesus, and Jesus can relate to you. If you've ever experienced depression, if you've ever experienced tears that just won't stop rolling down your cheeks, if you've ever experienced that feeling of you don't want to get out of bed, if you've experienced panic attacks, this is what Jesus was experiencing in this time. You might have seen the ad campaign, Jesus Gets Us. Friends, Jesus gets us. But also, if you've been tracking with us in our study in Mark up to this point, this should be a little bit of a shocking picture, portrait of Jesus. And the reason is because up until this point, Jesus has been pretty unflappable. I mean, Jesus has been calm in the face of threats. Jesus always seems to know the right answer and know just what to say at the right time. Jesus encounters demons and demonic forces and casts them out and they tremble before him. This is the same Jesus who fell asleep in the middle of a hurricane on the sea on a pillow. And when he wakes up, he's like, shh, quiet. And everything quiets down. And yet this same Jesus we encounter here, who looks completely different, one that's just melting, one who's just falling apart emotionally and physically. What is it that has him in such a deep personal crisis? You say, well, he... He knew he was about to die. Well, that's true. Jesus and he'd been telling his disciples in no uncertain terms exactly how he was going to die. He repeated himself multiple times. In fact, Jesus in Mark 10, 45 said, the whole reason I came is to give my life as a ransom for many. He knew he was going to be the substitute for our sin. He, he got it. He knew it. So why is he falling apart emotionally? Did you find it ironic that 
Many of Jesus' own followers later would die more courageously, face death with more inner emotional strength than Jesus. Polycarp, for example, he was a disciple of John in the late first and into the second century. And just before his death, he was told to recant of his faith in Jesus or he would be burned at the fire. And this is what Polycarp said. Polycarp said, the fire you speak of lasts but an hour and is quenched with a little. But do you know of the fire of judgment? So come, why delay? Do what you will. Whoa, that's inner strength. That's emotional courage. Or how about Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who calmly went to the gallows of the Nazis? And he said, this is the end for me, but it's just the beginning. How is it that Jesus is falling apart emotionally and physically in this moment? Well, the answer is it has to be something more than the notion of death. As horrible as his death and his suffering would be, it's more than that. What is it? Well, the Bible tells us. Look at verse 36. Abba, Father. It's a personal name for for God. Abba, Daddy, Father. Everything is possible for you. Take this what from me? What does it say? This cup from me. Well, what is a cup? What cup is he talking about? Well, the cup in the Old Testament, particularly in prophetic texts, was a cup that symbolizes a metaphor of the wrath of God against evil and rebellion. It was the wrath of God poured out, the divine justice of God poured out on injustice. And so here in the garden, it seems as if the gravity of the cup hit Jesus like a ton of bricks. The reality, not that he would die, but the reality that he would face the divine justice, the wrath of God that would be poured out on him. I mean, think about it. Jesus dwelled in perfect uh, uh, unity and love within the Godhead, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. He's only known perfect unity for all of eternity. But in this moment, that unity in some way would be broken. He'd be forsaken by the Father. Remember what he he cries out on the cross? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because the Father had to turn his head away as he poured out wrath on Jesus for our sake. And it was this thought that made him stagger, that made him stumble, that made him feel the full weight of dread. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God. And it hit him like it never hit him before. This is the crucible moment in the life of Jesus Christ. And if he would have turned back here, if he would have said, okay, you know what? I, I can't take this cup. All the good and wonderful things that he did, all the miracles, all the healing, all the great moral teaching, all the lessons about justice wouldn't have made a single bit of difference because none of those things, listen, none of those things forgive sins. None of those things bring us to eternity. 
See, Jesus didn't just come into the world to be a good teacher or a healer or a philanthropist or a humanitarian or a revolutionary. There are people, many people, who think that's all he is, right? But all those things are secondary. The reason he came into the world is to be a ransom, a sin substitute for your sin and mine before a holy God. That's why he came. Let me just say, if you're here today, and maybe you only know of Jesus in the terms of a good teacher, or you know of Jesus in terms of a philanthropist, or somebody that cared a lot about justice, friends, those those things are true. But do you know him as a personal savior from your sins and mine? That's why he can. I I want you to encourage you to think about that. Make him your savior from your sins. This is the crucible, crucible moment in the life of Jesus where we might say his human will was in conflict with his divine will. God was going in one direction with his will and his human will was going in another direction. You say, whoa, 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 hold on. Time out, Nate. What are you saying? I mean, like, don't Christians believe that Jesus is God? Yes. Well, then how can this happen? I mean, how can his will be in conflict? I mean, did he really have a crisis? Did, did he re- would he have done anything else? Did he really even have a choice? Explain to me exactly how his human nature and his divine nature work together. I can't. I don't know. I really don't know the answer to that. That's above my pay grade, as they say. Jesus is the only being in the universe who knows what that's like, who experienced it, and he doesn't tell us all the details. Oh, we could go on about, you know, speculate, and we could go into deep theological conversations about the hypostatic union of God the Father uh, with God the Son and his, and, the, and his 100% humanity and his 100% divinity, and all that stuff is fine, but none of that stuff really matters when it comes to the inner workings of how it happened. How it happened we don't know. What's way more important is that you know how Jesus resolved this gap between his human will and the divine will of God. That's what we need to talk about. How did Jesus go into Gethsemane? What does it say? He went in filled, overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. He went in with panic. He went in with dread and agony and weakness. How did he come out of Gethsemane? Well, if you read on, you find out he came out of Gethsemane calm. He came out resolved, submitted, ready to fulfill his mission and to bear the cup of God. How did that happen? What did he do? Well, the answer, friends, is he fell on his face and he prayed. And he prayed, not my will, but yours be done. Not my will, but yours be done. Now we gloss over this little phrase, not my will, but yours be done. We add it to the end of a prayer sometime. You know, we check it off the Christian list. You know, not my will, but yours be done, but I really want my will to be done. <laughs> There's so much in this little prayer, not my will, but yours be done. In that little prayer, are things like this. I imagine Jesus saying something like this, Father, there is a massive gap 
between your will and mine right now. Your desires and my desires. Father, I do not want to have to face this cup. I do not want this cup. I'm looking for an escape hatch. Any other way. I'm filled with fear. I'm filled with anxiety and dread. Father, I need you to close the gap between your will and my will, your desires and my desires, so that I can submit under and be in sync with your will and your desires. And this was not a 20-second prayer of Jesus. He kept at it. Let's continue to read on. Verse 37. Then he returned to his disciples and he found them sleeping, as disciples do. Simon, he said to Peter, are you sleeping? Couldn't you keep watch for one hour? Poor Peter, right? All the disciples are sleeping, but it's like Peter that gets called out. And he always takes it on the chin. But notice when the disciples are sleeping, Jesus was praying for how long? At this point, already an hour. And he's wrestling with the Father in prayer. And it continues, verse 38. Watch and pray so that you do not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. They also have a gap between their will and the Father's will. Once more, he went away and he prayed the same thing. And he came back and again, he found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy and they did not know what to say to him. I've seen some of you experience this very thing as I'm preaching. (laughs) And when I say something to you, you do not know what to say. (laughs) But it says again, returning for the third time. Three times We don't know how long, but well over an hour, Jesus is wrestling. Jesus is keeping at it. Slowly but surely, his human will and God's will are getting closer together, becoming more in sync. It was a process of wrestling. I would imagine petitioning to the Lord and then sitting silent and listening, of, of speaking and sitting in silence and quietness, of of crying out and and expressing and being vulnerable to the Lord of what he's feeling and then receiving comfort and love from God until finally his will was submitted and at sync and at peace with the will of the Father. As one pastor said, and I completely agree, the victory of the cross was won on his knees in the garden. The victory of the cross was won on his knees in the garden. And we are forever grateful because of that it purchased our salvation. Now, this is as far as I want to go in the story because we need to spend a few minutes talking about you and me today. I used to have a VW Jetta. Any Volkswagen fans out there? I used to be one um, until I had this car for a while. Uh, This was my college car. And um, this car had a habit of getting out of wheel alignment. And so the car would start to shake and it would, you know, the the steering wheel would always veer to the right. And I I figured out like how to just deal with that. Um, But sometimes I'd have people come in my car and I have to kind of embarrassingly like, yeah, it's shaking. Well, here's why. And it kind of goes out this way. And sometimes when somebody would drive my car, I'd have to go through this whole thing. Well, here's what you do. And the car's not falling apart. And just, you know, make sure you're keeping the steering wheel kind of going a little bit left, right? Go through that whole thing. You say, well, Nate, why didn't you get it fixed? I tried to get it fixed one time. And uh, it worked for a little bit. And then it went out of alignment again. And I'm a poor college kid. The only way I can fix things is with, like duct tape, not cash. 
And duct tape wasn't fixing this one, right? So I just dealt with it. And that car came up in my mind as I was reflecting on this sermon because I thought, you know what? I am just like that car sometimes. I can become, I can, I can be in alignment and then very quickly get out of alignment again with the will of God. I can be walking with him and feeling good and then something happens and I'm just like, God's will's over here, my will's over here. I remember one time I was getting ready to preach. I was driving into the church and I was, you know, in the spirit. I was lockstep with God and all, yeah, everything's awesome. And a guy uh, uh, kind of goes out in front of me, cut, cuts me off. And I did one of these like, you know, and he was like, you know, one of those. <laughs> I was like, and I got angry and I just wanted to like go right up against his bumper and follow him wherever he's going and tell him what I think. I didn't. But don't judge me because you're the same way. (laughs) We all are when it comes to our will and God's will. There's something about us. Our human will is often set against God's will. In Galatians 5, uh, Paul says it like this, that the spirit and the flesh are set against one another. They're in conflict with one another so that you do not do that which you desire. Our human will wants to go in one direction, to tug against the direction of God, and go our own way. And this goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden, doesn't it? With Adam and Eve, God's will was one thing about the fruit. Adam's will was another about the fruit. And what happened? Who won the tug of war? Well, Adam won. He wanted his will. The very next sin that's talked about in the Bible, Cain and Abel. And Cain is really angry at his brother. And what does God come and say to him? He says, hey, sin is crouching at your door, but you must master it. God had a will. Cain had a will. Who won? Cain, I want my will. And on and on it goes. This is a human condition. It's a story of man, a tug of war. We want to go our own way. So what do we do about that? How do we deal with that when we find that conflict between God's will for our lives and our will for our lives? Well, the answer, friends, is right here in this prayer of realignment. It's exactly what Jesus shows us in the garden. It is critical to following Christ. It is getting on our face, getting on our knees, wrestling with God like Jesus, getting honest with God. You know you can be honest with God? Look how honest Jesus was. You can be honest with God. You can say something like, Father, I am so anxious right now. I am so frustrated. I am angry right now. I am so filled with desire right now that doesn't please you. I'm stubborn. My emotions are all over the place. You can say, you know what? There's a huge gap between your will and my will. And to be honest with you, God, I don't want your will. Part of me that doesn't want to go do your your will. And so, Lord, if that's going to change, you have to do something supernaturally in my heart, in my will to align that. Lord, do that inside me. And that's a process that we wrestle with the Lord in. And it's a painful process, but it's a process filled with joy if you submit to it. It's a process that changes us if you are willing to go through it. I was dealing dealing with this a couple of weeks ago. I was dealing with uh, lack of forgiveness in my heart towards someone. And I'm not someone who easily feels victimized or or betrayed, but this time, if if I'm honest, I felt a little bit betrayed. I felt a little bit hurt. And, and I thought, you know what, after all I've done for this person, after all I've been patient with this person, I tried to help this person, and this is how they treat me? I was angry. 
I don't want to forgive this person. I was stubborn in my heart. I'm not forgiving this person. And I got before the Lord and a few prayer walks. Didn't happen first one. Didn't happen the second one. Third one started to get there. But I started saying, okay, Lord, I know that you want me to forgive this person. You say in your Bible that we need to forgive those as you have forgiven us. And how dare we not forgive someone after all you've forgiven us? But Lord, I don't want to. They hurt me. I want to stay angry. I want to stay bitter. So Lord, you have to supernaturally change my heart. I don't know how to do that. So Lord, align me with your will and your heart and your desires. And you know what? He's faithful to do that. He began to remove that bitterness and that angry anger. He began to soften my heart to that person so I could forgive them. And he'll do it for you. Where do we need prayer of realignment in our lives? Where do you need that in your life? Maybe there's an area of your life that you've been praying for God to change your circumstances. What I've found, sometimes he changes our circumstances. He changes our job, or he changes a relationship, or he changes our finances. But a lot of times, he doesn't change our circumstances, but he changes us in the midst of our circumstances. Where do you need that? Where are you stubbornly resisting God's will? What desires are you acting on that you know are sinful before God and go against his desires in your life? Maybe it's forgiveness like me. You say, forgiveness, are you kidding me? You have no idea what this person has done to me. Sounds like you need the prayer of alignment. Maybe it's finances. You know, you know what God's calling you to do with your money. He's made it clear to you. He wants you to start giving or being more sacrificial and generous, but maybe you, what you really want is that nice red sports car. Or you want to you know, redesign uh, all of your furniture. You want to get those new shoes or whatever, and, and you feel the tug of God's will, but you know where your will is on that matter. Sounds like you need the prayer of realignment. Maybe it comes to your sexual desires in your sex life. Say, oh man, you are really meddling now, Nate. I know this is controversial because the world tells us that our sexual desires, our impulses should be expressed. In fact, they must be acted upon because to do anything else is considered repressive and inauthentic to your true self. So live out your sexual desires. Explore those to all the way to the end. What I say about that is that is a lie from the pit of hell. And you need to know it. You need to take that thought captive that the world tries to feed you. What does the Bible say? The Bible says, flee sexual temptation. Flee. God designed sex to be lived out in commitment, a covenant commitment between a husband and wife. All other sexual acts are sin. Well, now that's a problem, isn't it? Because that's hard to do. That's really hard to live out. Whether you're married or you're single, that's hard to live out. Whether you're dating or you're, you're, you're not dating right now, that's hard to live out. Whether you have desire for uh, the opposite sex or the same sex, that's hard to live out, isn't it? So what do we do? We need prayers of alignment. You might pray, God, change my desires and take away my desires, and maybe he will, but maybe he will give you the peace and the power and the resolve to be aligned with his desires and his will. That's the prayer of realignment. Now, as effective and as helpful as all of these prayers of realignment have been in my life and will be in your life, 
listen carefully, they mean nothing, absolutely nothing, if you do not trust in the character of God. If you do not believe what we were singing earlier in the goodness of God, in the faithfulness, in the intent and sovereignty of God, in the love of God for your life, there's no way you're submitting your will to his. Why? Because you don't trust his will is good or better than yours. We must believe in who God says he is. You know, in the Garden of Eden, remember Adam, his, the gap between Adam's will and God's will was wide, and he did not trust in the goodness and sovereign purpose of, of God, and so he disobeyed. Friends, there was another garden, the Garden of Gethsemane, and there was another Adam, the second Adam, the Bible calls him Jesus Christ, and in the gap between his will and God's will, he trusted in the sovereign goodness of God, and he obeyed. Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. Pastor Hayes is going to come up, and he's going to sing a song over us. It might be a new song to you. I want you to think about the lyrics. It walks from the garden to the cross in the life of Jesus in this song. And as you meditate on the words, I want you to let that wash over you. But would you also consider doing this? Would you take out your connection card? And you can put, it, put your name on it, or you can leave it anonymous if you'd like. But maybe write down a prayer of realignment in your life or an area of your life that you know you need to get more aligned with the will of God. You need to submit your desires in his life. And you can put that in those offering boxes on the way out just so we know how to pray for you and make that commitment in your life. Listen to this song.